Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Needs Some Introduction. I'm your host, Victor. And in today's episode, I will be breaking down the fourth episode of the fourth season of Barry, the final season of Barry, It Takes a Psycho. And then Sona will be joining the conversation, breaking down the most recent episode of Succession, also in its final season, an episode called Living Plus. A few show notes, you probably noticed that there was no episode. We had no episode this week recapping Yellow Jackets. That's because there was no episode this week of Yellow Jackets, something that I did not realize until I was preparing to record that episode this Friday. And there was no episode to watch, which is to say it's a perfect time to catch up on that season if you haven't yet. I have a feeling that there are some big happenings on that show this week. Additionally, there is just a overwhelming amount of content being dropped before our eyes for these shows to be eligible for the Emmy nomination cutoff, which is end of May. So another cramped month with many new things premiering. I will probably try to have some kind of review roundup on Wednesday, so maybe still holding that episode temporarily. Also importantly, a new series, science fiction series, coming to Apple TV Plus this week called Silo, starring Rebecca Ferguson and an all-star cast. And this series seems to be very interesting, right up my alley, some dense science fiction, and I will be covering it here week to week. So do expect to see those recaps and thematic analysis of that show starting this week. It premieres on Thursday with two episodes, I believe. Thursday night, the official date is Friday, but just so you know, Apple TV Plus's shows always premiere the previous day, right around 9 p.m. Eastern time, even earlier on the West Coast. So stay tuned for that. We will be covering it week to week here on the show, as well as other shows that are premiering in June, and I'll be announcing those in the subsequent weeks as well. By the way, if you'd like to jump straight to the succession recap, jump to approximately the 22-minute mark. So let's kick things off with the recap of Barry. It takes a psycho. As we open, we see a chopper taking off from the prison where Barry was housed. There's an area-wide manhunt in effect. How did Barry escape? We don't know. We do not find out in this episode. And we may never find out unless there is some conversation at some later point where Barry lays it all out. Inside the prison, Fuchs gets the worst of the immediate aftermath of Barry's escape. After all, he was screaming out about how they were planning to kill Barry. So obviously he knew. So they want to know, how did the assassins get into the prison? Who sent them? And how did Barry escape? And where is he headed? Ironically accusing Fuchs of both orchestrating the assassination of Barry and also helping him escape. (laughs) Gene, meanwhile, is out at his cabin the scene of the crime where Barry committed the assassination that got him arrested in the first place. As we've discussed in earlier breakdowns of this current season of the show, this season is all about an attempt to return home, to return to the past, and also reverting to old patterns of behavior. In this particular case, Gene had been honorable, selfless in his protection of his son and his grandson last season and has reverted to his petty selfish self by this point in the season. He's freaking out here that he needs to stay at this cabin where his girlfriend had been murdered previously, let's not forget. His son won't stay with him. He's very disappointed in him, which is very indicative of this reversal of fortune from the smiling, proud son that we saw in episode one of this season to this version of his son now. Gene, meanwhile, is primarily concerned that he will not be able to order food from his favorite cafe. This apparently has been Jim Moss's suggestion If Gene is out in that cabin, he'll be in radio silence, will not be able to talk to the media and screw this all up. 
Meanwhile, at Gene's house in Los Angeles, we see these bumbling cops arrive. Among them, of course, this hilarious cop from last year, this detective who kept doubling down on Fuchs's raven identity. I can't remember the character's name here. Jim is there also staking out the place. And he informs him that Kusanao is actually staying at his cabin in Big Bear. And theoretically, they say they're sending a police officer there to provide additional security. Not sure, given where this episode goes, if there was actually someone there at that time. I hope so, for Gene's son's sake. We also discover that they've been tailing Sally as well, and also going to Hank's headquarters to keep an eye on him. We do get another podcasting joke here. This whole screw up with the assassination. This is what happens when you hire two guys with a podcast. Thank you very much. Taking digs at us podcasters. Hank seems extremely freaked out when we finally catch up with him. And we assume at this moment that he's concerned about Barry. We actually hear a helicopter fly overhead. Now, is this the helicopter looking for Barry or is this just paranoia at this point? But everybody has a helicopter flying overhead at some point in this episode. Hank and Cristobal have dreamed of this moment for two years. The business is ready to get off the ground. This is what Cristobal tells his men. And now it's time for a little R&R. By the way, I love how Hank keeps getting his American aphorism screwed up. He tells his men that they've been busting their nuts, <laughs> not busting their humps. So it's time for a little R&R. They have, what do they have here? They have cocktails. They have cocktail waitresses. They have gambling tables, I think. This is not a bad setup. An odd motif for this R&R, but seems to be pretty pleasant. And the guys seem to definitely enjoy it. Valley arrives with this tall actress that she's been coaching, Kristen, on the set of this huge comic book movie, Mega Girls. Sally notices that the director of this sci-fi colossus is Sean Heater, who's the actual director of the Academy Award-winning Best Picture winner, Coda, from a few years back. This conversation is pretty funny. <laughs> she mentions to Sally, I'm clearly shifting gears here, <laughs> going from Coda, this small independent movie, to this massive film. This is a very insider joke, but very true that a lot of these People who are directing Marvel films now and Star Wars films basically made one or two very low-budget films and then all of a sudden are handed the reins to a $200 million blockbuster. I don't know if this is how it actually is where you can bring your acting coach on set with you at a movie, but it does kind of make sense that that would be possible. As they get ready to shoot the scene, Sally takes a seat and is recognized by one of these studio executives that is supervising the production of the film. He says, hey, Untitled Vagina Woman, <laughs> you landed on your feet. Sally is encouraging from the sidelines, but this actress screws up her line after starting off pretty strong, just forgot her line, and storms off the set. That's when that same executive says, you're up acting coach, and Sally misses a call. Of course, the warning that Barry's on the loose. This is around the same time when Gene's still wandering around the cabin, but gets a phone call on the landline from Tom, his agent, who just made it to the bottom of the hill, now got cell service again, and just found out that Barry has escaped. Gene, of course, assumes that Barry is headed his way. Gene goes and retrieves his prop gun, the one that Rip Torn gave him. And it does indeed, as predicted, if Rip Torn gave it to you, it shoots real bullets. It does indeed shoot real bullets. Back to Sally. She's coaching her actress, trying to get her to be able to do the performance. But then, of course, Sally tries to take the bull by the horns, turns around, faces the director, and does the line reading facetiously as if she is actually coaching her student, but of course, she's really auditioning for the role. Hilariously, she actually steps in the line of sight, blocking her out. 
the director is truly impressed and says, now if we can only get that out of that. <laughs> so can you get those words that come out of her mouth in that way? Hank continues to be very distracted and asks the guys, hey, do you want to go check out the sand? Just as Hank offers the guys to go check out the sand, we see that Ellie Finest is about to invade Hank's headquarters and take down his gang. Turns out, of course, they are at Dave and Buster's, <laughs> hilariously, and are just beating up random Dave and Buster's patrons. I like the conversation on the walkie-talkie saying that mostly they just have power cards, <laughs> no weapons. Hank does indeed take the gang to go see the sand, and he congregates them all towards the middle of the silo. It's a huge amount of sand. Once again, I love this. This is the whole kid in the poodle. <laughs> Hank pretty urgently asks Cristobal to follow him, but he gets drawn back to the huddle of men who are trying to show him something on their phone. And this is when the sifter gets turned on and they all sink into the sand, including Cristobal. It's interesting that this is all played for laughs at first, but when we are actually with Cristobal, who is the last to sink into the sand, who is suffocating underground, this is truly terrifying. If you have any kind of fear of suffocation or any kind of claustrophobia, this is a truly terrifying situation he finds himself in. But he is rescued by Hank just in the nick of time. Hader has played his cards perfectly in introducing Batir last episode, briefly threatening Hank that he needs to get in line with the Chechen mob again or face the consequences. I don't even think I mentioned that in last week's recap, or maybe very briefly did, because the obviously, this is the sleight of hand, we've been distracted by the whole Barry situation. And even in this episode, all the stress we see on Hank's face, we assume it has to do with the conversation that we had with Barry, and maybe the information he's received that Barry might be on the loose. But no, it turns out it is this double cross, this killing off of the LA competition to clear the way for the Chechens to take control of LA again. Of course, Hank has cooperated with the Chechens, and this was all a setup. And Cristobal discovers it at this moment. Hank has been lying to him this whole entire time, setting this up behind his back, and you see the disappointment on his face. But he really can't take any action at this point. We do catch up with Fuchs one more time, beaten horribly. Everybody in the mess hall looks at him, and then the moment passes, and everybody goes back to what they were doing. We get to the end of the episode. Gene, waiting in the dark, there's a figure in the doorway. He shoots, and that figure collapses. Gene assumes he's shot Barry, but he's actually shot his son, who has gone to his favorite cafe, picked up some food, and decided to actually get over his disappointment with his dad and spend the night with him out in the cabin. And I really do hope this guy's not dead. I do hope there was an actual police detail outside who can quickly get medical attention for him. I guess we'll find out next week. Meanwhile, Sally, really in a truly great moment here for the Sally character and this actress, is offered not only the redemption of her career potentially, but the best job offer she's ever had. This studio executive says, I like the work you did today. I want to bring you in as an acting coach on all of our big blockbuster films. You get $70,000 per film and you get to network with all of these A-list writers, directors, producers, and you'll definitely be able to get the best roles that are right for you, the right best type of roles that are right for you. Important caveat there. Sally's weighing this out when her student says, are you okay? Sally still doesn't know that Barry's on the loose. 
And this dialogue gets drowned out by yet another helicopter flying overhead. And she tells Sally, you need to come home with me. And Sally goes, nah, I'm okay on my own. She does also compliment her that she did a good job that day. The actress says, well, I just imitated you. But she goes, I know, but still, you did a good job. This is maybe the least petty we've seen Sally in quite some time, selflessly encouraging this actress. Maybe she sees the road not taken here as she basically is walking away from her dreams of being an actress. Then we get to the heart of this episode and really one of the greatest sequences this show has ever had. The Chechens are having dinner with Hank and Cristobal. Cristobal is not really participating. He's in the other room quietly waiting for them to leave. The Chechens give Hank supposedly everything he's ever wanted. He gets to run LA. The other gangs have been killed off. That's a loyalty test to the Chechens. They give him pretty autonomous reign of Los Angeles to do what you want to do. And they even say, and Cristobal, as long as he is loyal to us and he's part of your family, is safe as well. Cristobal has been sitting there in the living room, weighing this all out this whole time. And Hank puts the prettiest spin on this that he can. We get to run LA. We've always wanted to do that. This was the only one that made sense. They were going to kill us. You don't understand. Interesting reversal here with Hank, where he has now called Cristobal naive for thinking that they could have gone straight, could have been legis- legitimate businessmen. That was never going to happen. And this is another mirroring here of the conversation where Cristobal called Hank soft. And the reason he had this reputation for being soft was things like his affinity for Barry. I think we both got blinded by the idea of a perfect world, but it's unrealistic. You want to be a crime lord? Now we are crime lords. No, I wanted to be legitimate. When you say that word, you sound naive. Why would you go along with all of it if you didn't want to? I tried. I tried for you. Again. Andre and Batir would have wiped us out. There was no other choice. Who are you? I'm Hank. No, you're not. I feel more like myself than I ever have. The man I love wouldn't have done something so cold-blooded. I don't don't understand. I don't understand why you're so shocked by this, okay? I've been keeping us safe. I would never fall in love with a psychopath. Yeah, well, it took a psychopath to save you from your crazy fucking wife, okay? Now, to lead an organization like this, you have to make the hard decisions. You have to take control, because if you don't, then you get fucking walked over. You get taken advantage of, okay? I'm sorry, but that does not jive with peace and love and harmony. I'm sorry, it just doesn't. I'm being honest. Where the fuck are you going? Christopher asks Hank, who are you? I never saw it coming. I got blindsided by this, and I think it's just so impressive the way the creators of the show have pulled this off. This, of course, is the mirror to Barry. Barry was this guy who just went along The reason we sympathized with him was that he never felt like he was this true sociopath. Hank similarly has been corrupted. He's this nice guy in this weird circumstance. He's not really a gangster. He's really just trying to protect himself, defend himself. And we read it that way. And then at this moment, we see how cold-blooded he is. And Christopher doesn't even recognize him anymore. And he says, I have never felt more like myself than I do now, now that he's become a pure psychopath which of course is a huge red flag for Cristobal to walk away. And these are the chickens coming home to roost. Obviously, Cristobal has also been playing in the sandbox for years now. Many people around him have died, and he's not able to accept the fact that this is where they've come to. And Hank warns him, he can't walk away. At first, it is like a jealous lover or a desperate, controlling lover to try to keep him with him. 
But we start to realize that that threat is not directly from Hank, although Hank may have very well have given this green light, but it's the fact that the Chechens will not allow this to go on. He knows too much, as they say. And there's this continued protracted scene in which they break up, and it's really heartbreaking. We know the subtext here, or we suspect it. And Hank tries desperately to get Christopher to come back into the house. Hank goes back inside and sits on the sofa and has this incredible emotional breakdown, like really just great acting here. Get ready to shine up that Emmy award for best supporting actor in a comedy series. Is this a comedy anymore? I don't know. And then in the background, out of focus, we see someone who looks a lot like Christopher walk back in the door. And once again, great directing here, playing us like a fiddle. For a moment, Christopher's come back. That's what I'm thinking. He thought about it again. Hank is right. He sees the danger and maybe they can fix things up between them and make this thing work. But no, that's not the case at all. It's one of the Chechen gangsters informing Hank that they have killed Christopher. And then we get to the end of the episode. Jim Moss is sleeping in front of Sally's house. Sally rolls in solo and he's like, damn, that was my last lead. I don't know where Barry is. She walks into her apartment and she calls out to Barry. She knows that Barry's there. In that darkened room, you may remember from last season, Sally goes into a very dark place when she has her meltdown. She realizes her career is ending and she backs into that blackened room. And now, closing the circle on that imagery, Barry emerges from that same darkened room. This is the only time you see Barry in the entire episode. And she just says to Barry, let's go. And he says, really? But the episode is not over. We see what I thought at the moment to be a flashback another flashback of Barry as a youngster fighting with another boy about his age. And is that man his dad? The dad from his memories? And we're in this desert sandy motif. I don't know if it was a beach before or a desert. I guess intentionally now we discover to be ambiguous. This kid storms into his house and we see him go directly to the fridge, still upset over this fight he had with his friend. We see six bottles of Chardonnay, a six pack of Budweiser, and a donut with sprinkles on it that has one bite taken out of it. And what does the kid reach for? He reaches for a can of Budweiser, maybe only to press against the sore spot on his head. And as he walks off camera, we see an older seeming Sally and Barry. Is this their kid? That's what it appears to be. And we have now jumped forward quite some time. This kid's grown. I believe Hater has said this is about an eight-year jump in time. I would have assumed this kid was older than seven, if that math works out, even if Sally got immediately pregnant. And what a shocking, shocking twist. I could have never anticipated. I was predicting maybe Sally's the one who kills Barry this year. Something in that general vicinity of possibility. And here we have them living in domestic bliss, question mark. Given the amount of drinking they're doing, maybe they're not as okay as they pretend to be here in this moment. And what are these dysfunctional parents going to scar their child with? Have they escaped undetected all this time? Many, many questions. And a totally shocking and unexpected time jump here at this point in the season. So now, once again, this show has completely and utterly usurped my expectations. Where is this all headed? I cannot wait to see what Hayter and Alec Berg and the rest of the showrunners have in store for us. In the rest of the season. So some interesting themes being developed here. Barry had a fantasy all the way back in season one that he had a family, that he was with Sally. And now 
He has exactly what he always fantasized about. What is the cost of that to himself, to his psyche? Is he a true psychopath? And then how can he reconcile that persona with this supposed domestic bliss that he's living in right now? And how is Sally feeding her massive ego as well, given this anonymous life she must be living, to be able to stay so low on the radar? And I can only imagine what has happened to Fuchs. Maybe he's being released from prison. Maybe that's why we're having this jump to this particular moment in time. And what is up with Hank? Has he now become a kingpin in Los Angeles? So these different directions, alternate histories for Barry with the Fuchs character and the Hank character, and how will they all reintegrate by the end of the show? Hank is in a circumstance right now where supposedly he got everything he wanted and he lost his lover. Barry, on the other hand, has his lover and is living in the desert. The option that Hank rejected, that heavenly scenario from the beginning of this season. But is that truly satisfying to him? And that's where we are in the middle of this final season. Four more episodes to go and a huge reset on the show and a huge reset on these characters. Just another reset potentially is with Sally herself, who chooses to be with this violent man and in her own mind is writing this story that she's with someone who makes her feel safe, this supposed tough guy, but she can control him. But isn't that the pattern she's had in the past where she always pursues these men who abuse her because she thinks that, well, this time it's going to be different. And here she is yet again, making that choice. This lie we tell ourselves that we can rewrite our character, make different decisions and deny ourselves. And in the end, fall back into the exact same traps over and over again. And how did Barry escape? How did they go undetected for all these years? Big questions, which I hope we get some answers for in the back half of the season. Really not what the show's about, honestly, but I would like to have those answers anyway. Okay, with that out of the way, let's get into the breakdown of the sixth episode of Succession, Living Plus. All right, Sona. So I did not have time to do the breakdown on my own. Things that life got in the way, as usual. It happens. And work, <laughs> my actual job. <laughs> so let's break down this episode. Living Plus. I love the branding here, Living Plus. Like everything mm -hmm. has a plus after Paramount Plus. That's right. <laughs> Apple TV Plus. Everything's got a plus in the end. Even living, apparently. All right. So Logan is back. We thought that we had seen the last of <laughs> That's right. Logan. He's back. And we see him on this blue screen, very angry about this ad getting critiqued. He does not like to have his performance critiqued. He has very low enthusiasm here, by the way. I mean, typical of Logan, though. <laughs> perhaps, perhaps. Well, I mean, I, you know what? He is either low energy or angry. You're right. So that's pretty right. much, we get we get both of those. What do you think about this living plus pitch at this moment? It's going to change a lot over the course of this episode. But at this moment, bringing the cruise experience uh, uh, to land. <laughs> I am very anti-cruise for a number of reasons. One being that like, I live in a city on an island and I feel like it's just transporting that experience to a boat of being like stuck with all the same people <laughs> right. on this floating vehicle. And also I feel like inevitably you are going to get sick. I feel like you're signing up to get sick when you go on a <laughs> cruise. The idea of replicating anything about that on land, even though I just compared my day-to-day -day living experience to a cruise, so maybe I'm losing credibility. Is it Manhattan just a giant ship? It's a you think giant about it? cruise. 
<laughs> it's true. There are too many people. You've got to wait online for everything. It's true. Exactly. You're sick all the time. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. That's right. There is some upside of living in Manhattan that you don't get <laughs> yes. on a cruise and that you wouldn't get in a living plus experience, although they are selling some interesting benefits that go along with it. Famous actors stopping by and random <laughs> well, I think that's Kendall's adding a lot there. But... Virtual experiences. <laughs> and I mean, it sounded kind of like living at Disney. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that's what they're replicating, right? You have these uh, yeah. characters, the IP characters on, on following you around. But it's interesting that this is basically an old age home. Senior living is what they call Senior it living. Now. Senior, Senior living. With the added benefit of having like I, you know, mascots and um, other, I'm gonna. I was about to say fox, but it's like basically the corollary of fox. This is what I'm imagining when I'm hearing this pitch. That this is a playground for people who love the fox properties, which includes, by the way, like, are you worried about security? So it's like the paranoid, <laughs> you know, cultural view of the average fox watcher, but also like the fox properties, which are not necessarily the same audience, right? Like, I guess like the pitch there that Kendall makes later on is that your kids will love to come see it right. because Bart Simpson is there and the Avatar characters are there. Uh, you don't care about those things, but that way your family will actually come and visit you. It's a very, <laughs> very strange pitch for this place. But of course, we'll get to Kendall's presentation. He pitches a whole lot more than that. Oh, boy. One more thing I want to mention before we move on from this scene is that when Logan gets all pissed off, he says, you're as useless as my kids. And mm -hmm. this is like a theme we see here in this episode with two of the, the with the two sons, basically. Kendall wants to watch that again. And then, of course, we have the bookend mm -hmm. Roman in the car being berated by his virtual ghost dad as well. Yeah, they can't let it go even after death. His dad is living plus. My gosh. He's in the plus part. Yes. <laughs> Colloquialism. <laughs> living in the plus. <laughs> so we see next Shiv is on her plane. Matson right next to her making little jokes. I mean, this whole thing was kind of adorable, wasn't it? It was. It really was. <laughs> I like kind of am like shipping them right now. I kind of want to a see what bit. happens. <laughs> they have a nice chemistry. <laughs> they do. I think she's a better match for Matson than she is for yeah. Tom, honestly. Although they're pushing the Tom thing so hard this week. I also think that Matson is very, very calculating. And I think what we see of his character is that he can manufacture that chemistry with people when he wants to. Right. So I don't know how genuine it is, but it is a nice chemistry to watch. And I do think it speaks to her as well. I think that Shiv is the worst developed character on the show. And I think this actress does a lot to add texture to her, but she doesn't always make sense to me, honestly. But I think one thing that I think is her strongest suit is in this scene that she oftentimes, because she's been surrounded by her dad and her brothers, she can play this flirtatious femme fatale role and I think I like to see the fact that it is just the performance. Like she really can't back it up, but in the room it works and it works mm -hmm. really well for Madsen here. So I think that's the most interesting thing about her character. And then I think the show, honestly, and we don't have to digress too much on this, but I think like the show doesn't know what to do with her beyond that. Mm -hmm, but mm -hmm. This is her at her best, basically, I think, where she has grown up surrounded by these toxic men and she knows how to read them and play them against each other in the room. Then once she has that figured out, she doesn't know what to do with it, <laughs> is my mm -hmm. general read of her. This is all very playful. I like how she he goes in there and says that it's, he describes that inside of her plane as being very gray. And she says, <laughs> don't make, don't criticize my jet interior. <laughs> <laughs> 
you know, he says, I don't like this living plus thing. I don't like real estate. He reads it as the most obvious version of itself. She goes, well, you know, this was something that was already in the works. I'm not gonna be able to pull the plug on this. He goes, well, try to stop it if you can. And he goes, do you want to be my girl on the inside? And she goes, okay, boy on the outside. <laughs> <laughs> I also like the fact that she, he says, why would you not just do what I ask you to, to facilitate this? And she goes, well, maybe I just love my brothers very much. And he just like laughs at them. It's like, oh yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and Matson also drops a little clue here, which seeds things. I do like to see this, that Matson is almost like a mind virus here. Just briefly, just in passing, oh, did I tell you this juicy piece of gossip about how your brothers had that meltdown on that mountaintop? That seed he plants at the beginning of the episode passes from person to person over the course of the episode. Because mm -hmm. then she shows up at the meeting in Los Angeles. They're there at the studio to see if they can get this out of control production of this really bad sounding movie under control. And they're also there too. They're going to use that as, an, as a stage for their introduction of Living Plus. Kendall walks in, sits down right where Shiv had put down her phone and she's so irritated by this. He didn't notice, uh, which speaks to a couple of things. One is how these brothers can really, these brothers and sisters can really get on each other's nerves without even realizing what they're doing. And then of course he, he just sitting down wherever he wants to and not even paying attention to what the seating arrangement was before. So it kind of speaks to Kendall and to her and to their dynamic in general. And this is so transparent. What did you think about this whole thing where Kendall and Roman are trying to say like, oh, he went Chernobyl up there. He just lost his cool. And they're all saying like, this is his brand. Like, we're not surprised by any of this. It's baked into the price. Like we know mm -hmm, that's it. Mm -hmm. you know, a genius. He's obnoxious, but he's a genius. Once again, the Elon Musk type of uh, analysis, like Elon Musk has basically lied openly about the sales projections for the Tesla vehicle for like a decade. And no one ever <laughs> sold the Tesla stock on that ever. So it's like, I don't think, and this is the corollary here, I think. And J Jerry's kind of confused by this. She doesn't seem to see right through it, but Shiv sees right through it. She's just like, okay, what was that? You guys are obviously trying to sabotage this deal. I guess everyone else thinks it's such a good deal that they got, yeah. that this is like their triumph. So why would they possibly be trying to sabotage it when this is such a huge success? You don't think anyone else can feel that the ATN thing bristling against that? Or maybe they just blind by the price that they're not even thinking about it. It hasn't occurred to them that these kids are having too much fun to let it go, essentially, right? Or like so hung up in trying to somehow accomplish something that would make their father proud that they're willing to jettison this entire public company <laughs> right. and its shareholders in exchange for their own pride, right? That does seem crazy on the surface. Yeah. And the price or the stabilization of the price. And I think Jerry is the one who called it out last week. The stock market is happy with Roman and Kendall as temporary CEOs, just preparing this deal for the merger with Gojo, but they're not necessarily in for the long haul. right? And they said, right, at the deal, like your dad would be so proud, right? Mm -hmm. Like right, right. maybe they see this as like, this is the accomplishment you always were looking for. Rest on your laurels. Maybe that is them placating him. If they do feel that they are hesitant here, maybe they are picking up on it. And that whole like, wow, you did such a great job. You did such a great job is a way to make them feel good about it because they don't want them to sabotage this thing in the 11th hour. And I think everybody's starting to worry about that. But what a reversal in the final moments of this episode. We're going to have to get to that because so much of this culminates in those final moments. It was a roller coaster for me, a total emotional <laughs> roller coaster there at the end. 
But before we leave this scene to go on to the next very interesting scene as well, we have this whole conversation where Shiv is asking, what is happening with you guys? Why are you trying to blow this up? I thought we were going to buy Pierce. Mm-hmm. And Kendall's pitch here is we could have it all. We could keep the company and still buy Pierce. I'm like, oh my God, he is delusional in this episode. And mm-hmm. it starts here. It gets so much out of control by the end. Mm-hmm. I like the awkward hug between the siblings. She just rolls yes. her eyes at this. It was very it's, sincere just a couple episodes ago. And exactly, now here it is. Trying to recreate that, but it, no. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that doesn't work this time. At least Roman, who is absolutely terrified of any kind of physical contact, does seem to be comfortable now with the hugging thing or a little more. <laughs> okay, next scene. Shiv has a 20-minute meeting that her assistant has scheduled for her to grieve. She's scheduling her grief. This actually reminded me of... Um... Broadcast news. Well, yes, but also I had a workplace where somebody would make a joke when you'd say, hey, can we talk about this at four o'clock today? And she would respond, well, that's normally my cry time, but I guess I can make an exception. <laughs> so, <laughs> so it's not unheard of. And she gets uh, interrupted by Tom. Tom walks in. And at this moment, I mean, did they have sex in that room? I think they did, right? They definitely have sex later, but I think they had sex. Definitely later. Um Oh, wow. It didn't occur to me that they might have. Maybe. This show is so non-sexual that the way that they cut away after they just started to kiss briefly. Kiss, yeah. I was like, that's a sex scene as a, in, in succession. It might be <laughs> in the terms of, yeah, that's a fair point. So I was like, wow, did they have sex? And then it, the only thing that made me question that was, of course, there was overtly a sex scene later. Once again, we only right. see the aftermath of it, but mm-hmm. much more explicitly. So I was like, well, maybe this was a sex scene. And the last one was like just the foreplay. That's how I read it. Yeah. And so Tom and Shiv, obviously, over the course of this entire episode, are drifting back together. I like when we see Kendall and Roman together, first discussing how they can pitch Living Plus as something more than it is. And Kendall starts to really spin out of control. But initially, he's kind of wary of the idea. I like how he describes this as being like a way to warehouse the elderly elderly while we suck them dry. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And then he sends Roman off to... Apparently, supposedly, supposedly to throw money at the executive. Once again, this is like 20th Century Fox. The studio would be the corollary here. That you basically sprinkle just throwing money. Sprinkle some sugar. Sprinkle some sugar, yeah. But I love all of the jargon. Kendall loves his corporate jargon here. He really does. You want to offer them infinite brain box. <laughs> you want to get the franchise pumping. Oh my God. You're the new space cowboy in town. I mean, there's so much of this. I just wrote down a few of these. They're just rapid, <laughs> they're rapid fire as Couldn't he's walking out up. the door. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Crazy. Annabelle Gish, I think is this, uh, Annabeth Gish, is that her name? Annabeth, She's I believe. The studio head who, I have to assume will come back. Can't just do one scene here at this point, considering you get someone who's recognizable in this role. But this was a great interaction between Roman and her. She offers him condolences. He says he's full up. <laughs> He pre-grieved, in fairness. <laughs> That's, true. That's true. Apparently not, given the reaction of the mountain. Uh, definitely not. He wants to talk about the movie going over budget. She goes, oh, yeah, you know, there's big, big egos there. It's funny. She's so dismissive of maybe something that is, and this is probably a critique of the Hollywood system, but this hundreds of millions of dollars overage, and it's just like, yeah, yeah, you know, we that's that's like marginal. Let's not talk about that right now. Yeah. I mean, considering this seems like it's a real train wreck, she does not seem like you know, you would think someone would be going out of their way to try and provide comfort that everything's fine. It's on track. You should trust me. She doesn't really seem to be too invested in appeasing Roman. 
she does have a very pressing issue, which does feel honestly like a realistic situation in Hollywood, which is, of course, that their corporate parent, which is once again, the corollary to Fox News, is pushing for someone who is extremely right wing. I don't think this character, Mencken, has a corollary in our real world politics, although maybe it's a nightmare scenario of the kind of pseudo-fascism we might see in the future, mm -hmm. or maybe the next election cycle, possibly, mentions the fact that not only that maybe she's uncomfortable with working for a company that is pushing for this candidate, but that she's being very practical, practical here as well, that the obviously most of the creative people in Hollywood are left-wing. How are you going to draw those talents into this umbrella organization that they think is politically dangerous? Right. I love Roman's assessment here, by the way, saying like, yes, you guys have built this real egalitarian society in your ruthlessly segregated city <laughs> that you've built on a geological fault line. <laughs> and then Joy makes a mistake here, I think, a miscalculation, where she says to him that she would rather be doing this negotiation with, with his dad. Mm -hmm. And he goes, well, I can fire you if I wanted to. And he goes, she goes, oh, no, I'm sure you got your job for the right reasons. Sarcastic, of course, in her tone. And he just decides, you know what? You're fired. Oh, boy. Mm-hmm. And she says, this is a mistake. And boy, I mean, we we have to see the fallout from all this, but this is a terrible idea. This is a giant studio. You have nobody to replace her. The studio is incredibly expensive. Blowing up the studio when you have nobody there to pick up the pieces is not going to make you look good to the people who are buying the stock in the company. I think this is kind of, you know, in keeping with the theme of the show, these kids really have no idea what they're doing, <laughs> right? have not thought through the consequences of their actions, have rarely in life had to deal with any consequences of their actions, partly because their dad probably cleans up after them a lot, saw it happen with Kendall in a very big way. In some way, they're trying to emulate their dad. I could see Logan, if someone rubs him the wrong way, firing them, saying like, this is it, last straw, you're done. But Logan knew what he was doing and he knew how to run a business. And even if it was a split second decision, I think in that split second, he would have some assessment of whether he could afford to really do that or not. I don't think Roman has that experience or skill. When you think about Logan firing Jerry, for example, Jerry, of course, is incredibly essential, maybe the most professional person who works in the whole organization. But Carl and Frank can pick up the slack temporarily. You could migrate someone else into that position. Maybe Carolina becomes, you lean on her more for strategic thinking and let them run the business day to day. And he's so intimate with that group of people. Think about a movie studio. It's a, such a complicated thing. The head of that is totally off on her own. She's managing multiple movies that are coming out at the same time and the budgets and green lighting movies for the next year, massaging egos, et cetera. And you just cut off the head of the studio. Mm -hmm. If you've already alienated your talent to make your movies because of your political affiliations, how does this help the situation? <laughs> it's, mm -hmm. it's pretty, pretty crazy and not the worst decision he makes this episode. Okay, speaking of people who are inept and living in their own minds and trying to emulate their dads and not knowing what the hell they're doing, the next scene, like perfectly setting up that up, is Kendall wanting to suddenly build one of these Living Plus housing units on stage overnight. He wants to have clouds above it mm -hmm. as well. It's something he saw when he was in, where was he? It was in the Berlin, right? Something he saw yes. when he's in Berlin at some expo or something. 
and you guys can do it. Well, uh, logistically, we, and he's like, new rule, you're not allowed to say no. I love this rule. If you just tell everybody they can't say no, of course, anything that's in your head will just suddenly manifest itself. Small plywood, basic brickwork, nothing crazy. I could walk through it. ATN on here, face aging on the wall here. Maybe clouds appear above the house. What do you think? We can definitely check with the team. Denny. It's certainly an exciting vision, but don't say no, Denny. Don't say no. This is for tomorrow? Hollywood, though, right? We need a house, practical build. Here's the rule, okay? No one can say no. Yes, Kendall. Thank you, Kendall, for the cool new rule. Thank you, Kendall. Thank you, Kendall. For the cool new rule. And I think that, once again, emulating the dad, he thinks that, hey, my dad never said let anyone say no. But to your point, his dad was asking for things that he knew were possible. And that's why he right. pushed people so hard. He assumes that all of a sudden, everybody on the studio lot is going to be making special effects for his presentation the next day. They have other stuff to do. <laughs> They're not going to be doing all this stuff overnight. So he probably has this skeleton crew of people who try to make this shoddy version of Living Plus. It looks at this moment like this is going to be a humiliating train wreck for Kendall. This reminded me almost of what I understand is that improv rule of you can never yes, that's right. you yes, know, yes. decline somebody's invitation to have some crazy scenario. And yes, you have to respond with yes. And so <laughs> right. it seemed like kind of a real world version of that. We can build a house on the stage in a day, right? Yes. And it's going to look like crap, but okay. <laughs> Yeah, it seems like Kendall's yes anding himself too. He's like, we're going to do the thing. We're going to have clouds. It's like, it's. And I love the cloud effect later, by the way. It's hilarious. I actually thought that in the end, it was a good looking cloud, but you had to get, you had to wait a bit. Felt exactly the same way. When you see the little spray coming out, it's humiliating. But then, like, when you see it from a distance, like after the fact, it's like, that's a pretty good. uh, Yeah. I mean, for stagecraft, that's pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. I also like the fact that this is when Roman comes in, in the crowd, we see Roman is starting to worry, starting to worry that Kendall might be spinning out a little bit, going into his manic phase. That night, they're at some kind of event, I guess, that the studio is throwing for their presence being there, or maybe the board in general. Tom is there. Shiv is there. This is a very heavy Tom and Shiv episode. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Whose and house this- is this, by the way? I think it's part of the studio lot. Mm-hmm. I could be wrong. It could be one of the executive, one of the studio executives, right? Might have this beautiful house in Malibu or something. I mean, given how things play out, I was kind of like, where are they anyway that this <laughs> right. is happening? Oh, right. Because of the room they have, right. I, I've worked in places where they have corporate center, like a hotel, basically, when they have guests and they have rooms there as well. So they have like food, they have, right? So I, that's what I kind of thought it was, but I could be wrong about that. It could just be someone's house and they just hooked up in someone's random bedroom. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. Before we get to the hookup though, I think this is a very important to see this counterpointed to her with Matson. With Matson, she's being very flirtatious. She's very in control. Here with Tom, she gets to once again act like a kid on, in the playground, right? there. Mm-hmm. He starts pretty sincerely where he says, I'm sorry that I fucked you up. I was kind of on her side here. Is that what happened, yes. Tom? <laughs> <laughs> right. Although she I was mean, horribly hurt by the betrayal last year, right? So I think there's yeah. some truth to what he said. 
And she did say that he broke her heart when she was talking with Matson. Maybe. But again, I feel like that was a consequence of things that she set in motion herself in some ways, but okay. Now, this character, TK, is not the journalist that she hooked up with regularly, right? Because there was something, she had a really bad breakup with TK, who I don't think is that guy, but you can correct me if I'm wrong. And we had it alluded to last week as well, that she was in a really bad place. Tom flew out to be with her. This is when they fell in love. I don't know what their relationship was before then. I guess they were coworkers maybe, or maybe they just kind of knew each other through the company and had already been dating or flirting. But it sounds like from that conversation on the stairs, and maybe we have to go all the way back to that last week's episode, he talks about how he went out there and then he started to take things further and further. And finally she acquiesced. And that was their first time. He explicitly says that was the first time that they were together. I'm thinking about that scene. And then I'm thinking about him mentioning how she was very hurt by the breakup with TK. See, now I assumed it was the journalist, but I did not go back to look up his name. It might be a nickname for him or something, but I don't think it's him, but I I could be wrong. Honestly, I don't know if it's important. (laughs) Either way, I'm not sure it's important. He says, oh, you know, I had my heartbreaks too. It was a very generic name, like Maria or something. I don't remember. Mary, Mary. Maria would be too ethnic. Yes, definitely for someone like Tom. And then they play bitey. First of all, this conversation to me was like very in keeping with like, they have this casual cruelty with each other, right? Yes. Mm -hmm. Yep. I feel like it's always instigated by her. But then, you know, Tom kind of does his best to try and keep up, maybe to show that it's not hurting him. But I feel like it probably is. Because what she says is just so unfathomably mean to me to say that to somebody that you love. It just is really cruel to me. But yes, then they play this playground game, which if you watched the the little after show segment is a real game that someone um, (laughs) that works on the show played with their sibling. And I think it is a very young siblings type of game to play, I say, as an only child. But this is what I would imagine. Yeah. When he bites down, she encourages him to bite down even harder. And she says, well, Tommy, you finally made me feel something. Another cruel dig there Mm -hmm. at the end. Oh, before we go any further, I wanted to bring this up too. And maybe this will be a bigger digression than I want it to be. The whole conversation earlier in the season that this is one day, 10 days in a row, there is no way. How many days do you think we are beyond the retreat with the Gojo folks? This is like three days later. And if that's the case, have we skipped Logan's funeral? Like, what do you think is happening here? Fair point on the funeral. I feel like that has happened already and we didn't see it. Surprising. Yeah. My sense is that we're a week to two weeks. Right. It's been a while, right? Although they were saying the election was happening in a week. And that was about- Oh, did they say that? Okay. So maybe the- But I mean, I I agree. It has to be. At least a couple of days later has to be. My gosh. These people must all be exhausted. (laughs) Exactly. They were just in Scandinavia. They have very comfortable comfortable (laughs) flying accommodations. So maybe they sleep on the plane for real. I know, but the grief of losing your father, flying to Scandinavia, going to the West Coast. I mean, that's a lot for anybody. Indeed, indeed. The jet lag alone. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) So let me get back to uh, this scene, which is so great. Greg, you know, whatever number of days after what happened in Scandinavia, is back on the inn with the family. He's playing his role, the the buffoon. Mm -hmm. But he says some very smart things here, I got to say. I like how he says it's very hard 
to imagine that houses are tech, considering <laughs> that they've been around for so long. <laughs> Fair point, Greg. <laughs> I also like that Roman talks about like, you know, uh, I'd like this idea. I like your pitch that this is about extending life because I just went through this whole thing with dad and I don't really like this form of death. This one size fits all solution. (laughs) (laughs) I like he calls it. It was very undad of him to die. (laughs) (laughs) I also like that. um, Kendall kind of walks back some of the things he's letting himself say, saying that, well, I'm not saying that you can live forever, but you can live more forever. (laughs) I mean, this to me is like completely unhinged. Um, (laughs) I don't know what they're trying to insinuate as far as the capabilities of this living plus facility. But, um, you know, I think we all would like to find a loophole out of mortality. But (laughs) um, to date, no one has discovered one. And I don't think, um, you know, this Disney World type experience is going to... I mean, maybe go along with like that idea of Walt Disney being cryogenically frozen. I don't know. (laughs) Maybe that's what they're alluding to here. (laughs) Yes. When we do finally figure it out, we'll be able to bring you back. Another sharp observation from Greg early in this conversation is when they say we can build up our price. They have a feeling. The rumor is that Gojo can't get over 192 and make the deal. So all we need is to drive up our price beyond that point. And apparently they're not close to that price right now. So he says they need unbelievable growth. And Greg says sarcastically, oh, so all we need is unbelievable growth? Like, yeah, (laughs) just snap your fingers and your company has unbelievable growth. Sign me up. And Roman calls him Dr. Sarcastic because of that. (laughs) But by the end of this conversation, they've won over Greg too, or at least he's pretending to be. Wow, yes. He says the pitch is kind of dope. And then he does his robot voice, which is apparently his new shtick with them. Oh, boy. I did like his robot voice, though. This is when Jerry walks in and is furious with him saying, I cannot believe you fired the head of the studio. You didn't do it when everybody else was there. You didn't make any contingency plans. She's going to sue us. And at first, Roman is kind of on his heels. He feels like he did do something wrong. But then he starts getting feeling really disrespected by Jerry. And this is an incredible scene. He obviously had this feelings for her at some point. But then he says to her that he needs her to believe that he is as great as his dad was. And she says, say it or mean it? This (laughs) is the exact same question I would have asked. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, if you need me to say the words, I can do that for you. But you have to understand, it doesn't mean I believe it. (laughs) Exactly. So that gets Jerry fired too. (laughs) (laughs) Twice now that Roman has fired Jerry in just three episodes, I think, or four episodes. She's really had a rough go of it. Now, Roman sheepishly goes to talk to Kendall that he's got a firing spree. And Kendall gets on board with this. He goes, death to joy. (laughs) (laughs) He goes, yeah, let's do it. Let's fire everybody. Put on your dad goggles, he says. (laughs) Which, you know, as I've discussed previously, I think the only way they can make this work is if they surround themselves with people smarter than them and listen (laughs) to them. And they are methodically (laughs) making that plan impossible. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So Kendall even says to Roman at one point, so who are you going to fire next? Me? <laughs> mm-hmm. Now, because there was this sequence here with Roman and Jerry, Roman and Jerry, yeah, I mean, well, he was, she was there too, but you have these people at the studio and then we cut to 
Tom and Shiv hooking up explicitly here now. Maybe they left their party and they went back to their hotel room or something. Oh, okay. Maybe. So, so maybe this didn't all happen there at the same location. But who knows? It's very unclear. More interestingly is that, you know, Tom's reaction to them as having sex was nice, very nice. He was very happy to have this mm-hmm. experience with her. She said it was and nice And so too. is she, right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And they finally have some of that conversation that they've been avoiding all this time. I like she calls him Mr. Phony Man, which is true, right? He's always wearing this face. She's mocking him for always being this, trying to always get along when he's always has his own agenda. But he's very honest with, with what he's saying to her. Very honest. About their relationship. And she says, truth bombs from Mr. Phony Man. <laughs> <laughs> but he says something very interesting. He said that he was afraid of getting caught between her and her father. If I try to say it, if I try to say the truth, it's that when I met you, all my life, I've been thinking a little bit about money and how to get money and how to keep money. And you didn't ask me in. Shiv, you kept me out. And I always agreed to all the compartments, but it seemed to me that I was going to be caught between you and your dad. And I really, really, really love my career and my money. And, you know, the suits and my watches and... Yeah, sure, I know. I like nice things, I do. And if you think that's shallow, why don't you throw out all your stuff for love? Throw out your necklaces and your jewels for a date at a three-star Italian. Yeah? Come and live with me in a trailer park. Yeah? Are you coming? Wow. I'd follow you anywhere for love. Tom Wamsgans. <laughs> he likes his nice fancy things. He wanted to preserve those things. And she scoffs at him, how petty. And she says, Oh yeah, I'm the petty one. Why don't you try to give up all your things mm-hmm. and come live with me in the trailer park? Mm-hmm. And man, Tom's face here, what an incredible performance. Him to like kind of say that's just a joke. And then he has this earnest look on her face. Then she laughs at him like the mole living at a trailer park. He laughs along too and really does seem to be laughing earnestly. He would never go back to that lifestyle either. So he's mm-hmm. in on the joke. But then that final shot of him is like him hurt as well. It's as if he has become this thing, but then it's almost like he's questioning all the things that the decisions he's made here. But yeah, mm-hmm. I thought this was really, really great. I agree. Okay, the next scene is Greg back in form again here with this episode. He's with the editor saying, I need you to change the words that come out of Logan's mouth. <laughs> he calls the editor Mr. Snippy Snip. And he starts to channel his own inner Logan here, basically saying, you have to make this happen because I want to be in the good books. <laughs> He's back in the good graces of the brothers and he wants to stay there. Okay, we don't get, we'll get back to this later on, but in the presentation itself, I literally rewound a couple of times to look at 
Logan's mouth when he says twice. You know, I was two. I was wishing I had done that this morning. Okay, tell me. You know, obviously the people who've seen the presentation, they're shocked and appalled by this, but I'd say it's pretty convincing. Like it's, I, I think they intentionally make it not look ridiculous. Like if it looked absolutely mm -hmm. preposterous, I think that would be a joke. Like I was actually expecting it to be like a jump in the edit that would be so obvious that it would make the presentation even more buffoonish, but it's pretty mm -hmm. subtle actually. I'm like, I think they almost pulled it off. Although I guess if someone wanted to do their due diligence to say it would all come out in the wash, but it was uh, not as the humiliation I expected. I actually went back a few times to check it out. I mean, this is a very current debate, right? About where is the ethical line with these things that you can do with people and their images that they have not consented to. And, you know, where do you stop? So, I mean, we've come a long way from, right? Wasn't it scandalous when people would have someone who had passed away singing a song and they would do a duet right. with them? And we would think like, this is crazy talk. Why would they do this, right? And now we're actually putting words into people's mouths. Yeah. Now you have the, uh, we talked about the Anthony Bourdain documentary last year where they used an AI voice to take mm -hmm. letters he'd written and make them sound like he recorded them. And of course, just this week, we had that song that came out with Drake and The Weeknd doing a duet, a completely made up song. Can't find that track anymore. It's been cease and desisted from all over the place, which I find very funny. This is a much bigger conversation, but I find it very funny that there was a cease and desist because I'm like, they didn't steal their music. They never wrote this music. And it's like, well, they stole their voices. I'm like, if someone does an imitation of The Weeknd or Drake, you can't sue them for doing an imitation. <laughs> so I'm not sure what the cease and desist yes. is about, but we're going to have many, many questions like this in mm -hmm. the future. Okay. This is the next day. Kendall is ready to make his presentation. He's running the numbers, the new slides past his head accountant, not the CFO, because that would be Carl, obviously. And he says, make the numbers crazy. But believable. <laughs> you're going to need to sit down and you're going to have to vet this. I look how this poor guy is going to have to stand up these numbers and make them be, make a case for them when he gets inevitably audited or something. Mm -hmm. And he's saying, just make them absolutely crazy. Whatever number you're thinking of, just double it. <laughs> Yikes. Pete, that's this guy's name. Poor Pete. He does get Pete on board though. Pete's like, oh, I don't know. I don't know. And then he's like, I think I can make the argument. And Kendall's like, that's what I want to hear. As the presentation is about to start, Lucas calls Shiv and says, can you pull the plug on this thing? I don't like real estate. I want don't want you guys to do this product launch. I don't have to unwind it all. I don't want to have to do this cleanup. She says, I think it's too late. This is like, it was already on the calendar. It's happening. It's, you know, we're minutes away. He says, I don't know. Can't you call a bomb threat? <laughs> Just anything to pull, blow you to uh, <laughs> cancel this event. And then we see Roman looking as Kendall walks in. This is when he sees the beautiful set that's been built. <laughs> <laughs> He has his sunglasses on and you just see Roman being like, uh-oh, I don't like the look of Kendall here. Kendall has that look in his eyes. Mm -hmm. As a ship says, right? He's got that gleam in his eyes. Yep. First of all, the idea that you would walk out and say like, this is where you can live. Look at this beautiful living plus <laughs> set that they've built. Even if he had gotten what he wanted, what would this thing look like that it would look appealing on the stage? It's like, it's a bizarre request on his part. Yes, I agree. The clouds, like you said, I actually think they look pretty good once the steam dissipates. In the end, once it's settled, yes. Yeah, but you see Kendall's face just fall here. It's all starting to fall apart for him. Every time he's had one of these big mm -hmm. events, whether it was at his dad's birthday or at his own birthday when he wanted to come mm -hmm. down on the giant crucifix, every or or like the uh, him interrupting the um, 
the board of uh, directors meeting earlier, like in season two or whatever, every time he's had one of these big events, they've all gone badly. And it's starting to feel to him, I think, that this is going to unravel here. And I mean, all indications that this is going to be a disaster. First, he sees yes. the, the stats on stage, obviously. Then they start getting called out about the numbers in the presentation. Shiv mentions it to Roman. I like when they're talking amongst themselves and they're saying like, the words are good. The numbers, I don't know where these numbers came from. Numbers are a little more scary. Numbers are fictional. It's interesting. Once again, watching Shiv in this particular episode, she's always hedging her bets. She tells Matson that she can't do what he asked her to do, but she's trying to do it here, right? So she's mm -hmm. not promising anything, but she act actually is acting on it. And maybe speaking to his ability of manipulating people as well, she starts saying, you know, he's got that gleam in his eyes. He starts getting these harebrained ideas. Maybe we should put a stop to it. Roman does go, once again, this toxic conversation from Lucas to Shiv and now to Roman. And now Roman goes and almost infects Kendall with it as well. I do like when Roman goes and starts questioning him about the numbers. Maybe we should delay this. You know, dad just died a few days ago. Maybe we just say we need a breather before we roll out the product. We need a little more time. He's trying to get him to back off of it. To your point about the numbers, I like the fact that Kendall calls himself out going like, can you believe these numbers we're just throwing around? Because it makes you almost lose their faith in capitalism. <laughs> <laughs> you can say anything, he says. <laughs> it turns out. I bet is what Robin says. Oh, I bet. <laughs> and he has the matching flight suits made for that. Yes. Which is... That's right. I was about to say that. Ken made him a matching flight jacket. So they have co-CEOs, yes. co-pilots. Mm -hmm. Kendall starts feeling Roman pull away. He starts losing that faith. He stops losing that momentum. Roman starts, at first he's trying to have him pull the plug, see things his way. And then he starts to yes him to death and being like, you know what? You're better with this. I don't want to get in the way. But of course, Kendall can see right through all of this. But Roman does decide to let Kendall set himself on fire on stage and just is mm -hmm. not there to support him. And then lastly, just as Kendall is walking onto the stage, Carl intercepts him and goes, I saw the presentation. Where are these numbers coming from? Don't say anything on stage that makes me look bad or I will squeal. He threatens him. I thought this was a great scene. Oh, yeah. Great. And Carl shows Carl that, you know, finally Carl reaching a limit. <laughs> With the Carl children. knows where all the skeletons are buried. He's the CFO. <laughs> yep. And then he steps on stage. My heart was in my throat. Like for a show that I literally had no suspenseful feelings for earlier on, as he's about to step on stage, I don't know if it was wanting to see him fall apart or just cringing at the thought of this utter humiliation I'm going to have to witness. I literally was nervous <laughs> as he stepped on stage. Was the feeling for me of like why I can't watch the early rounds of American Idol. I don't <laughs> right. watch the show anymore at all, but when I used to watch it, you know, those early rounds where they're purposefully showing you people who are just not going to get there, but have utter confidence in themselves regardless, was just so cringeworthy to me that I could not sit through it. And it was kind of a similar feeling here. My God, this presentation gets off to a horrible, horrible start. Big shoes, big, big, big shoes. shoes. Big shoes, big shoes, big shoes. <laughs> Roman's reaction is big nervous breakdown. <laughs> he also brings up the fact, hey, I like disrupted this presentation last year and now I'm the CEO. How crazy is this? <laughs> Life is crazy. <laughs> crazy. Oh my God. And then they have taken some of Logan's audio. <laughs> Speaking of your creepy duets from the past, you have... um. Nat King Cole and his mm -hmm. daughter, unforgettable. 
Mm-hmm. This is the much worse version of that. Oh boy. <laughs> the strangest double act ever. <laughs> mm-hmm. of, like, how creepy is this? His dad has just died days before and they haven't come out on stage. Just what a bizarre, bizarre choice. This whole interaction with Shiv and Roman is really gross, by the way. When she says, oh, I can't watch. And uh, Rome says, yeah, as you watch the fuck out of it. And basically insinuates that she's getting sexually aroused by it. Meanwhile, Greg is telling Tom, hey, you were worried about your speech. Don't worry about it. All you have to go out there now is just mop up the blood. Mop up the blood. Yes. (laughs) And then the pitch starts. And I got to say, this may not hold up once people start to dissect this idea. But in this moment, Kendall does a pretty good job. He, first of all, makes the pitch that this is security plus entertainment. Isn't that what everybody wants? Mm-hmm. I always think about those two things in the same breath <laughs> and it lasts forever. And I, I do love how he tries to massage the actual product where he's saying like, you know, your kids will want to come visit you, your grandkids, you'll have integrated character IP life enhancement. <laughs> I mean, what is so that have, even? So you have basically these bobbleheaded characters with probably high teenagers puking through the eye holes like Greg did in that first oh, season boy. of the show. This is your integrated, your lifestyle's been integrated. Who wants mascots walking around in your apartment complex? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> but that's the sales pitch. Some of the stuff is so mundane, and then the final pitch is so over the top. He literally goes from character IPs, early screenings to our mm-hmm. new movies. And then he goes to, hey, we have these relationships with pharmaceutical and other medical tech companies. We are going to be life extending. We, do you want to live 10 years longer, 20, 30, maybe 50 years long, 50 years more? <laughs> what Yikes. is he pitching here? Yeah. I mean, I'm literally doing the map of like, well, I guess if this is a 50 and over community, you could right. technically make it. But, <laughs> but it's like you're 50 promising years a lot. More. They're extending yeah, your life by 50 pro- years. So theoretically, uh, like, yes, you weren't going to die at 55. <laughs> Hopefully. Yes. Not, anyway. And this goes pretty well, especially when he says, I would like just another day with my dad. So this it has an emotional pitch to it. It seems like he really pulled this out at the last second, right? In that he was compelling. He was charismatic. He told people what they wanted to hear, I guess. I mean, this seems like a strange thing for anyone to want to hear. People found it appealing. In that way, he has done a great job in this moment. What the repercussions will be remains to be seen. But I guess short term, if he's just looking to drive that stock price up in order to make this deal fall apart, he may at least be able to accomplish that. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think that he did the best he could in the circumstance. And it seems to be that the immediate reaction is pretty positive. All right. While Kendall's on stage, Matson is observing all of this and he doesn't like it, does not like it. <laughs> and he calls Shiv. Shiv gives him the idea that maybe he could, you know, put something on social media that will attract attention. <laughs> Matson, <laughs> we have to parse this tweet out because Matson tweets something which is extreme, to say the mm-hmm. least. But then there's a graphical component and stuff like this. Does he just have somebody in the room who will make graphics for him? Or did he have this thing in his back pocket ready to unleash onto the world? It's pretty <laughs> elaborate. This is so he tweets out. And I did research this because I didn't understand this at all. I had to Google but, it also. And now you're on a watch list, by the way. So, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, once they run that with my demographics, it's extremely <laughs> unlikely that I'm a threat. So he tweets out, Dodderick mocked Frey, which I didn't understand at all. <laughs> Same. Honestly. 
So first of all, there is a passing reference that there was a big animated movie coming out. Doderick is the mascot of Royco. It's like, this is literally the character that Greg is dressed up as all the way in the very first episode of the show. Right. And there's a big movie coming out apparently where he has, it's Doderick and Friends or something like that. It's going to be like a big animated movie that's coming out soon or maybe has already come out. Like they're Mickey Mouse basically. And what we see is, Doderick, the dog, holding balloons outside of Auschwitz. And Auschwitz has a plaque that says, Our bite, my German is terrible, mocked Frey, which means work will set you free. Which, of course, the idea of Auschwitz was the work camps were a way to set the Jews free, which, of course, did, was not the case, obviously. This horrible moment in history that's being referenced here. And he's basically hinting at the fact that they are putting these old people into concentration camps. I mean, that is the implication, yes. <laughs> and that Doderick is, you know, surveilling the, the the territory. So so it's just framing this whole thing in a really terrible light. And Bleak. by the way, yeah, to say the least, this is why it seems like he did this on, off the cuff. Shiv says, how do I feel about this? And she calls them prison camps for the elderly. So that's what Shiv says. The tweet directly references that. But how could he throw this together so quickly? It just makes no sense at all. <laughs> oh, well, you know, he has a bunch of people who aren't allowed to say no to him, I guess. <laughs> uh, yeah. But it's so funny because he's chilling in his armchair. So the tweet comes out. It gets referenced immediately by a journalist in the audience. And Kendall, he wins the day here, I got to say. And uh, not only that, uh, Shiv also, having a little bit of power here, calls uh, Matson. And tells him, maybe you're drawing too much attention to this, maybe uh, a little too much. And yeah. he says, I know what I'm doing. But then he deletes the tweet. Yes. She has a little more power here, definitely. She's on the winner list, I think, for this particular episode in this whole exchange. And Matson's on the bottom of this thing, too, right? Because he has failed to derail this whole announcement. Yes. From pausing the screen, I was curious to see everybody looking at Twitter reactions to Kendall's general assessment. And here's one of the tweets they show pretty prominently on the screen. This is where Kendall is ascendant. Rather than being derailed, I love this fake tweet language, which is probably accurate. <laughs> Presentation <laughs> today was pretty, totally compelling. I'm going long on KR, Kendall Roy. Okay. What would you say to an offer of immortality? I'd say fucking please, dog. <laughs> <laughs> Even if the offer was from a talking dog. <laughs> <laughs> and who wants to live forever me, me. i'm in hashtag, <laughs> hashtag living plus hashtag yes please <laughs> so that is one of the tweets so indicating that you know aside from the, the twitter digression with that nasty comic the reaction was pretty positive online although maybe it is just the Meme stock buyers who are just like infinite life, awesome. I'm I'm in. <laughs> They're also buying game spots, this uh, game uh, spots still. So take that with a great assault. Kendall's reaction too was good. Of well, I'm not going to fave it. <laughs> yes, great reaction. Yes, good good job with him that taking that yeah. and then taking it back to his loss of his dad and stuff. So winning the day once again, very well written. The sequence in the fact that he wins that interchange, but doesn't actually address it in any way. Right. But, hey, that's what you would do with that situation. You would just change the topic completely. So, yes. I mean, it was kind of a, I understand why the journalist asked that question, but right. you literally have been watching Kendall this entire time. When would he have had time to see this tweet? 
Yeah, this this is, I mean, once again, not all journalists behave this way, but that is really irritating because it does happen sometimes. How do you feel about Matson's tweet? Obviously, he could not have read it unless right. he has. He's wearing like Google Glass <laughs> and he's watching his Twitter yes. feed while he's speaking to you, which he obviously was not. <laughs> he walks off stage, applause. The audience seems pretty positive on all of this. Tom's there waiting in the wings. He's like, how do I follow that up? He just offered them uh, eternal life. <laughs> mm -hmm. And then we hear just the beginning of his speech. And oh my God, what, what is it? He does the whole Oprah thing. What was he saying? You get a, you're an ATN citizen. You're an ATN citizen. citizen. You're, I'm an ATN citizen. And this is pretty much all we hear of his presentation. But oof, what a rough intro to that coming <sighs> off of that. And like making this Oprah reference, like, oh my God, like <laughs> that's that's a 20 years old now, maybe more. Yeah. So yeah, not, well, I was going to say not a winning week for Tom, but most people are going to tune out and turn to Twitter immediately once he walks out on stage anyway, no matter what he said. And uh, he's repairing his relationship with, with Shiv. So maybe he is in the winner circle this week. Yeah. And you know, something I was thinking about in connection with that conversation where they're both really honest about how important the money is to them. Is that like, this is just another version of that relationship that we see with Willa and Connor with yes. Marsha mm -hmm. and Logan, right. Of like the reality of acknowledging the security that that money provides. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. I mean, I've talked about many times in many contexts, right. That marriage is what you agree it's going to be. And it can be the greatest love story ever told, or it can be two people who are having their needs met by each other, whatever those needs may be. And I think it's very practical and very acknowledged in the various relationships in this show that the money is a big driver for why people are doing what they're doing. It, we may have discussed it here on the show in the kind of sweet direction that that relationship has gone in, in the fact that there is something liberating in the context of the show, maybe in life in general as a life lesson, that the fact that their relationship is purely transactional, but openly so, is honest in a way that maybe these other people who have all these expectations or have completely different expectations of what's happening in their relationships are completely not in healthy relationships for that reason. So maybe at some level, all relationships have some amount of transactionality. And just being honest about that is probably the best thing you can do. So maybe that conversation they have there is they can, is a bridge that they can build together. Yeah, it doesn't mean it's a bad thing. Right. I love when Kendall goes backstage and everybody reacts. And Carl, who just moments before he walked mm -hmm, on stage, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. was like, I'm going to destroy your life. I will squeal. I'll rat. I'll tell everybody <laughs> everything about every... Oh, the stock price is up. We have liftoff, Houston. We have liftoff. Love lift it. This is Carl in a nutshell. <laughs> Can I buy my island? That's all I care about, my friend. <laughs> He's special. I love that too. He's special. He's special. I love it. Yeah, and Hugo, hail to the king and the king and the queen. He's got to. He's got to be diplomatic about all this, of course. He's on the chopping block. We already know he's not going to survive the Gojo merger if there is one at this point. But in the midst of all this cheering for Kendall, Roman just walks out. I mean, Roman could have shared in the limelight at this moment made the choice to assume Kendall was going to implode, didn't back him, and now Kendall gets all of that limelight. Mm -hmm. And then we see everybody driving away afterwards. Roman is being berated by his virtual dad, has had this very bad edit job of the audio, making fun of his penis. Yeah, crazy. Penis Can you imagine? Is it the same editor? 
how'd you create that? <laughs> <laughs> this I have to assume a that this guy didn't do that. And second of all, the it's a it's a hack job here compared to what they did. Okay, okay. So he may have even done this himself on <laughs> with the simple editing tools on his phone. Going back to the very beginning of the episode, he misses being berated by his uh, and mocked by his dad in the same way that Kendall replays that comment that his dad makes. You're as useless as my kids. What what do you think that says about this dynamic? Their dad is dead and they still can't move beyond him. Yeah, it's really twisted, isn't it? I guess it's that feeling of never having the closure of making him proud or satisfying him. But the way that it drives them is such a interesting theme for this show because they are fully grown adults. I think um, a lot of people, I think, have that idea, especially a lot of children of immigrants, I would say, have that idea of like, they will never meet their parents' standards and they whatever they accomplish, no matter how great it may be, will never be enough. But I think that most people, when they reach adulthood, feel they've carved out a pretty nice life for themselves. And while their parents can certainly trigger them, they make their peace with it, right? And with their relationship with their parents. And certainly when their parents pass away, I think there might be some grieving to deal with, with the fact that like you felt like you were never good enough, but not in this way that it is driving them day to day in the moment. I mean, it's only been less than a week we talked about, but still it seems pretty twisted. Yeah, I I agree. I mean, it's not that they should be over it now. Obviously they can't be this quickly, but the fact that they need to have this daily mocking that he had. So it goes back to the idea that Kendall sees that note where Logan had written down his name. The next in succession is my son, Kendall, wrote it down. And all he thinks about is my name may have been crossed out. It might've been underlined. You could choose to see it that way. It might've been struck out. I think it was struck out. But to Frank's point, even if he struck it out, he had to strike it out because he wrote it down that first time. And At some point, saying, he thought he so. He wrote yes. my name down and he struck it out because, hey, we went back and forth. Instead of saying that my name was there to be struck out in the first place, he can never see it that way. He can only see the negative part of it. And like literally, they take this video that has this negative thing about them. And in one case, he wants to have it replayed. In the other case, he has to manufacture a nasty aside from his dad, <laughs> in Roman's case, to, to what? To fill in the blank of that father figure who they miss the abusive part of him. Like it's a very, very strange um, interactions here at the end. I agree with you completely. (laughs) Very twisted. Shiv and Tom also driving away together, showing that they like now traveling to the same place, maybe still sleeping together. I mean, just cohabitating, but also a sexual relationship again has still not told them about the pregnancy even now. Yeah. Which is interesting because it hasn't been that, long, I would think that, well, it's it's definitely not been 20 weeks since they last slept together. You'd think you would notice a change in her body, but I don't know. Yeah. in 20 weeks. Intimately. Is... I understand by appearances. I thought even when they hugged, he might notice, but certainly after they've slept together, wouldn't he notice? But I don't know. And even if 20 weeks, it seems to be the doctor saying that this is the upcoming 20 week. Right examination. So maybe they're still at month four or something. Month four is when it starts to get pretty noticeable. So if she's anywhere near five months, she's going to be very obviously pregnant, I think. I mean, to someone that you're sleeping with. Yeah. 
<laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, I've seen women hide it for a very long time, especially taller women. But um, but yeah, I think I found that strange. I mean, to that point, Sarah Snook is actually pregnant and can pass off uh, in a, a suit, can pass off not showing any baby bump at this point in the show. I don't know how pregnant she was during these scenes. I mean, I don't really want to go down this rabbit hole too far, but it seemed like she was <laughs> maybe less pregnant here than she was in some of the earlier scenes, which would make sense. I can imagine they shot all the New York scenes at one time, right, shot all right. the Los Angeles scenes, and then before they went to Europe and shot the Europe scenes. So they could be shot completely out of sequence. So that's not odd that she would have, uh, she would be different sizes in, you know, in, in points of the pregnancy and they wouldn't have been shot in sequence. Nothing is ever shot in sequence. It's just way too complicated to pull that off. Too exp- I shouldn't say it's way too expensive to pull that off. All of that is to say that based on their own numbers, she should be much more pronouncedly pregnant. And he should have noticed. Yeah. So she should just say something. <laughs> All of that. Yes. I don't know what she's and, waiting for at this point. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't know what else is left. Okay. And then we end the episode. Another final moment, Kendall floating, but not drowning in a pool with his face submerged, floating on his back. And the smile on his face, he's done it at this moment. This is maybe the biggest high we've ever seen Kendall in. I mean, every time he's tried anything, he has failed at it. Either his dad has gotten in his head or he screwed things up for himself with his addictions and with some of the other situations. So once again, the presentation wasn't even a total knockout. It was just the best he could do given the circumstances. And it seems to have moved the stock up enough maybe to make the Matson deal a little more complicated. But all that is to say that he has a win in this week. And this is kind of a beautiful final moment of him floating in the water here. We question whether any of this is a good idea, but sure. <laughs> Did they shoot this on the Pacific coast? The water there is so cold. <laughs> you know, I've heard that. And I was thinking about that while I was watching Kendall in the water, that all the times I have been out to the West coast um, obviously the weather is different than here, but it's still been winter time. So it's never really been an option for me to get in the water. Although it didn't stop my kid last time we were in San Diego, which was over Thanksgiving a couple of years ago. So I really don't know, but I have heard that, yes, it is very, very chilly in the water there. I mean, in the summer, until you get maybe very late in the summer, the water is ice cold. Like my feet go numb in the water out there. I do not know if they made this poor Jeremy Strong <laughs> jump into those icy waters. I mean, or if they he's were such a method actor. He would have done <laughs> it, right? Absolutely. absolutely. <laughs> All right. So I, a couple of things I wanted to talk about here at the end, other than just speculation for the future. Another thing I liked here was the satire on the tech industry where you could just make up numbers and in tech, it's okay. Like as soon as you say this is tech you can make up any numbers you want. And I think there's definitely some social commentary here. You think about Theranos, you think mm-hmm. about the Nikola electric 18-wheelers that were purchased by General Motors for like $5 billion or something. And then it came out, we discovered that the video of the truck, this battery-powered truck, had no engine in it, had no battery in it. It was rolling downhill. <laughs> Oh my God. So the definition of vaporware, GM spending billions of dollars on something that was never even built, just like the Theranos thing. Just like we found out now that Tesla's videos of their AI self-driving cars were not AI self-driving cars. And now they're trying to say, oh, well, you know, we were saying this was just a, a video, like this is just like a proof of concept video. We weren't actually driving with AI, except that the video says right on it, the drivers are in the driving seats, 
purely for you know security reasons. They are not driving these cars at all. And it's just like, mm. well, that was all a lie. Anyway, all this is to say that it is completely normal for if you work in a tech industry to make up a technology, say it's worth $25 billion, and then everybody just throws money at you. So maybe this will drive up their, their uh, price. They're basically just taking old school senior living and saying it's tech. And everybody's like, okay, here's $50 billion. Yeah. <laughs> Hashtag yes, please. Matson's plan with the tweet. So obviously Matson sends out this tweet. It's a way to divert the conversation, a way to distract Kendall. He's obviously dropping it right before the questioning begins so that the media will see it and react to it. What was his plan? How does this help his acquisition of Royco or not? What is his plan in sending that tweet out? What, what, what do you think the effect of it is? Somehow cause some backlash against the idea of this concept so that they don't, in the end, see it through. I, I'm really just guessing here. And then do people theoretically laugh at Living Plus in that scenario? It drives down their stock price and then he buys something that's worth even less? Like, I don't understand how, I mean, he's theoretically stated a price that it's in the books. Yes. Like he's not going to just suddenly say, oh, True. you know what? Given last week, I'm going to drop it 20%. It's too late. That's not going to happen. Other than getting in Kendall's head, what is the bigger play? I don't get it. Uh, counterbalance whatever stock price increase enough so that it stays at about the value that he agreed to buy it at. Um, I don't know. Have we? I'm trying to think if we've seen him be irrational in that way that he would just tweet something because he was angry. I mean, if there's a corollary to the real world, I think you're probably talking about Elon Musk again, where he probably thinks he's smarter than everybody else so that he can basically talk his way out of it. Like, let's say he sends out this tweet. It makes the stock toxic. Then they're saying, well, now you're buying something that's not worth that much. So maybe the Gojo price goes down. But then he gets on stage and says, this is exactly the problem with this company. I'm going to reform it and blah, 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 blah. And he thinks he's he has the ego to say like, oh yeah, I could fix it all. Which of course makes him like Kendall, except that he has built this massively successful company, right? So it's uh, like Elon Musk again, he is this blowhard who's full of himself and loves having his ego massaged. And simultaneously, he's the richest man in the world. Or, well, not anymore, but one of the richest men in the world. So he's been right more times than not. So he mm -hmm. has the ability, the, he's allowed to be that obnoxious blowhard in a way that Kendall really hasn't done anything, right? So it's, mm -hmm. anyway, I, I'm still not 100% sure on that strategy though. Yeah, it's strange. And one more thing I want to talk about. What do you think about this family dynamic in general? Shiv aligns herself with her brothers when push comes to shove, when Matson is in the plane with her and says, you can torpedo this whole thing, she seems to mostly, mostly align herself with her brothers. I think she still is mostly aligned with her brothers and yet has this insurance policy with the Matson situation. And it's just so bizarre because she could potentially use the Matson in to sabotage this deal and end up with ATN. She could potentially blow up everything, make the deal go through, make her brother look bad, get this thing done. And maybe in the long term, it's better for her brother anyway than having this role and potentially mm -hmm. failing miserably. So anyway, it's this weird hedging. And I'm not saying it's unrealistic, by the way. Like we have, we have friends, neighbors who have multiple kids and that is their dynamic, right? They're frenemies. They're always sabotaging each other, mm -hmm. always each other's best friends simultaneously. So I think it makes sense in a sibling 
perspective, but it just seems like from uh, making a decision and deciding how you're going to live the rest of your life, it seems like they're self-sabotaging and maybe that's intentional. They're just trying to stay in this in-between state forever if they can, which of course is impossible. But what do you what do you make of all this? Roman's the same way, right? Like Roman sides with his brother, tries to sabotage him in the last minute, then backs away from him and now feels like he's on the outs and he should have gone forward with it. But it's everything else. It's also Roman just going on a, as soon as he gets mad, firing everybody who's he, he, with an eye line, uh, eyesight of him. Like, what is going on with this dynamic, if you can read it at all? Well, I think it is kind of that, I'm guessing, it's that loss of the father figure that all of their decisions have been made based on getting his approval and making him happy. And now, without that, they're not, they've got no one telling them the right thing to do or giving them a sense of the right thing to do by showing happiness or unhappiness. So you're just kind of um, taking a stab in the dark, right? To say, like, is this what I'm supposed to be doing? Maybe, but what if it's not? Let me try and keep my irons in the fire in case this is the right path. And, you know, I think they just don't know what on earth they're supposed to be doing anymore. And this is the same situation they had with their dad also, right? Where they were trying to placate the dad and then placate each other simultaneously. So saying one thing to each other and then basically making nobody happy because the dad never got what he wanted. The kids never got what they wanted. Right. It was just this never ending. Nobody was ever happy. I agree. Yeah. It's just, and they're replicating it again with the Matson being in their mean dad, <laughs> you know, surrogate. Yes. And that's about it. Do you have any speculation? I mean, I, from week to week, I have no idea who, I mean, the, the fact that Kendall's probably at his strongest right now makes me think it's almost certain that it's not going to last. But someone has to win this thing at the end, right? So do you have any guesses here? Yeah. I mean, like you said, things look really great for Kendall in this moment, but it all is kind of precarious, right? It's kind of like a house of cards with not all that much to back it up besides the pretty words. What do you think is going to happen with this Matson deal? Do you think it's going to happen? Multiple times in this season, I've thought Matson could just walk away <laughs> at any time. Matson still wants this for some reason. And I know we have proof of that because next week, apparently they're having the election party and Matson is there in a in gold- sequin jacket. Yeah. A sequin jacket. Yeah. <laughs> and they're like, who invited him? And apparently the dad had this party on the calendar and invited him months ago. So wasn't expecting to be dead by then. So, and I do wonder, is it the night of the election? So will we see- this will be the night of the day leading up to the party. And then the election results might go late into the night. Is that the next episode? And then where will we be? At that point, that'll be episode seven and eight. So it's still two more episodes. Two more episodes after the election results seems to be like too many. So maybe we're not yet at the election time. If I try and think about it in different terms of, is anybody getting a happy ending here? The only person that right now people I see right now getting a happy ending are, I think it's looking pretty good for Shiv and Tom. It feels like if there's any kind of directional pull of the show right now, it's that. And that Jesse Armstrong has said that the end of this show is about Shiv and Tom. So I think that- Oh, interesting. I didn't know that. I think that the re their relationship is going to be important to the finale. And maybe that's going to be the message he brings is that by having- this successful relationship, if they can rebuild it, that it kind of smooths out all of this other toxicity because everybody else is looking for their 
fulfillment in life through money, through power, through these giant corporate shenanigans, through getting in people's minds and playing these kind of, but in the end, it's also empty, right? The money goes away. It's never enough. The gamesmanship is hollow one day later, once like they it's people reframe the data or the conversation and the power moves and the manipulation of people usually just leaves you alone in the end. So maybe that's the point he's trying to make about the hollowness of this lifestyle. And uh, that would be very conservative, surprisingly, um, culturally conservative, <laughs> you know, landing point for this show. I, I would be surprised if that's the case, but maybe that is a direction it's going in. But I don't think that necessarily means that they are the successors, right? Right, right. That's a bigger question, I think. I don't necessarily see anyone ending this show feeling content, except possibly Shiv and Tom. Right. And because they're not tied up in the business anymore. I think. Possibly. Yes. Possibly. Yeah. Finally, someone takes my advice to say, screw this whole thing. Let's go live on a <laughs> Caribbean island. Take your billion dollars and go. <laughs> Maybe they'll move onto that Greek island that's being purchased. <laughs> that's right. Carl can rent out part of Plenty it. Plenty of room for everyone on Carl's island <laughs> or his half. <laughs> right. Right. All right. Thank you again for the conversation. Thank you.